Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Well, it's good to have everybody today. Um, before we get into our study this morning, I'd like you to take your notes out. Uh, I want you to just write something on the top. Let's have a little fun here. Um, I want you to think of who is the most important guest you've ever had over your house for a meal. Who is it? I know some of you guys hobnob with big wigs. I know you do. Uh, maybe it's a, a football player. Maybe it was a political person who's running for office. Maybe uh, it's somebody who's a famous musician. Write that down somewhere on the top of your outlines who is the most important person you ever had over your house for a meal. Don't just look at me. Have you done it? You got, you got, and nothing's coming to mind? Okay, well, we're going to talk about a guy this morning who uh, actually had somebody over at his house for a meal. And I don't care how significant the person is that you had. Well, the person that he had is over his house is much more impressive than anything you did. In fact, uh, he had Jesus over his house for lunch. Now, interestingly, he doesn't have Jesus over his house for lunch in the New Testament. But actually, it's 4,000 years ago in the Old Testament we find Jesus coming to lunch. You see, as a church, we're working our way through the, the book of Genesis. And for the last few weeks, we have been studying the life of Abraham. And today, we're going to look at a time where Jesus comes to lunch at Abram's house. Now, take your outlines out and follow along with me. We're going to jump in right here at Genesis chapter 18, verse 1. A lot of text to cover, but a lot of good stuff as we go through this today. It says, And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. Now he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and he bowed himself to the earth. And he said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. And let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Well, do as you have said. And Abram went quickly into the tent of Sarah and said, Quick, three sayas of fine flour, knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. And then he took curds and milk and the calf that he'd prepared and he set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. That ends the least part, first part of the Lord's word that we're going to look at this morning. Let me just see if I can set the context for you. Remember, at this time, Abram is about 100 years old. Sarah, she is 90, and they're not spring chickens. And they have this surprise guest 
that show up. One of them, by the way, is Jesus, and apparently the other two are angels. And some of you are saying, well, it doesn't say Jesus' name in the text here, so why are you claiming that this is Jesus? So let me give you a couple reasons. Number one, if you look in your Bibles, some of you will have an English text that has the word Lord all in capital letters. There's a significant reason for that. Others, you will have an English text that has the word Lord in the beginning here with a capital L and Lord in other places further on down the story in a lowercase l. But here's what you need to realize. The word for Lord here is actually the name Yahweh. It's the name for God. So this is God appears to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre. And God is appearing in human form. Not all three of them are human. Two of them, it looks like, are angels. But one of them is God. And in case there's any question, as you follow the story through, and as we go through this story in uh, Genesis 18 and look at it next week when we get to Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 19, you find that God here, or this guy named Lord, displays all the qualities of God. Not all the qualities, I should say, some of the qualities. Like he knows the future. He can trolls the future. Those are the kind of things that God does. Thirdly, you need to understand that in the Old Testament, that when it, you see Jesus showing up a number of times, oftentimes he makes these appearances, these cameo appearances, and the title that is given to him is usually called um, the Angel of the Lord. Sometimes here you have this one. It's not called the angel of the Lord. He's just called the Lord. For instance, uh, in the burning bush with Moses, it was the angel of the Lord. It seems to show up. And when you have later in the story with, Isaac, or with Abram, when it comes to the sacrifice of Isaac, it's the angel of the Lord that is showing up again and again. The pillar of fire and the cloud by day that leads the Israelites is also talked about as the angel of the Lord. And when you see this, the angel of the Lord shows up all throughout the Old Testament, but then when you get to the New Testament, he disappears. It's like the angel of the Lord is busy interfacing with people, but then all of a sudden in the New Testament, he's now interfacing with people with human flesh on all the time, not just appearing human on occasions, but he is human. So what we have is this is Jesus, 2,000 years before Bethlehem, showing up to have lunch with Abram. Where does it take place? It's taking place by the Oaks of Mamre. And I've always just read through that, didn't think much of that, until I did a little bit of research and looked what Mamre actually means. Mamre means strength or fatness. Uh, and maybe not fat as an F-A-T, but fat as in P-H-A-T. You know, like, this is a nice place. This is a nice land. Things are, he is well fed. If Abram's in his retirement years, this is a good retirement. You know, this is the place where he is. And by the way, he's been there since Genesis 13, verse 8. Now, what does the, uh, the situation look like here? 
What happens is Abram's finished his morning chores. He's taking a little siesta. It's getting hot out. The sun is beginning to come up. And Abram is on his tent porch. That's what he literally is doing. And he has his feet up. He has his head back. His hands are, are crossed. You know life is good when you live in the, the place called fatness and you're taking a nap before lunch, not after. True? Life is good at this point. Now, he opens one of his eyes, and he sees three men standing in front of him. One we recognize, he recognizes Jesus. The other two apparently are angels. He gets out of his chair, runs over, puts his face on the ground, and, and sort of like really gracious, really kind to them. By the way, note to self, if Jesus ever shows up on your doorstep, get out of the chair and run over and like bow before him. That's the appropriate response. Now he says this. He says, if I have found favor in your eyes, do not pass by. What he's doing, he says, you know, guys, would you please come over my house? Please stop for a little bit, a few minutes. Let me show you some hospitality. Let me be gracious and kind to you. My wife makes a mean gyro sandwich. Let me have her whip one up for lunch. Now, it doesn't sound like much. We're going to talk about hospitality for a few minutes. But I think that Abram's incredible hospitality in Genesis chapter 18 toward these angels is meant to be a little bit of a contrast towards the incredible inhospitality we see towards these angels in Genesis chapter 19 where you go to Sodom. You think about it. What do we learn in Sodom next week if you've been through that text? Um, you know, people would stay in the city squares and, and nobody would go for them. And maybe Lot would go out and Lot would invite people over his house. And if you stayed there and you were a stranger, you might be gang raped in the city square out there. Bad hospitality in Sodom, good hospitality with Abraham. Notice that difference there? Now, here's a little simple point of application I want you to write down. It's on your notes. If God has touched my life, I will love serving strangers. If God has touched my life, I will love serving strangers. And some of you are thinking, well, that's a big jump from this little part here on Abram and how he treats these, these guests. Well, when you come to the New Testament... One of the distinguishing marks of Christians is that they excel in hospitality. And you need to understand there's a difference between hospitality and fellowship. Hospitality, literally, in the Greek, is just two words put together. It means friends of, or friend of strangers. It's being a friend to people who are strange to you that you do not know. It is doing exactly what Abraham is doing. Inviting people over your home that are not normally part of your friends or part of your relational circle. This is one of the distinguishing characteristics of Christians. Look what it says here in Titus chapter 1, 7 through 8. In particular here, talking about any kind of a church leader. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for grain, gain, but what? 
hospitable, which means somebody who is a friend towards strangers, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. It's a requirement for leadership in the church. By the way, it's not just for church leaders. It should actually be for all of us. Because you come down to Hebrews 13, verse 2, and it says this, Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. I think the writer of Hebrews is actually referring back to Genesis chapter 18 that we're studying this morning. So, this idea of meeting new people, this idea of opening up our home to strangers, by the way, is not just a preference issue. This in the Scripture is actually a gospel issue. If you can't invite people over your home because your home is not in a condition to invite people over, invite them out to lunch someplace. Go out to a restaurant. And I just want to encourage us here at Crosswinds, I really want to encourage us to excel in this issue of hospitality, to excel in being a friend to the strangers. Strangers are people that we don't know. I'm not just talking about somebody who's walking down the street. I'm not just talking about somebody who is brand new in our community. I am talking about people that we may see in church even, at the, you know, just, just around the coffee bar, people who is new that we do not know. I really want us to excel in this issue. And let me just spend some time telling you why this is so important. One thing you need to know is hospitality as a culture, we are on the downturn on it. Um, today, I saw a study that we have 45% less people over our home than was happening in America 25 years ago. The home is becoming an increasingly closed place to our friends and, our stra and strangers rather than an open place to friends and strangers. Number two, Many of us as Christians confuse hospitality with fellowship. Let me explain the difference. Remember, hospitality literally means friend of stranger. Fellowship literally means in common. It means doing life together. Fellowship is hanging out with other Christians. Hospitality is hanging out with people who necessarily are new so both are important. Isn't that true? We should have good fellowship. We should hang out with other Christians. But we also have to make sure we hang out and are welcoming to strangers. Think about it from this perspective. If it were not for God's hospitality, we would not be part of His family. Isn't it true? Because we, at one time, were strangers we at one time were um, you know, outside of a relationship with God. We were outside of His church, His people. But somebody reached out to us. God Himself reached out to us through His Son. He was the friend of sinners. He cared for us. He welcomed us into His family. God extended lavish kindness and lavish love to us. And then He also extended it through somebody else in his church that was like a bridge to bring us to God. 
Somebody showed us hospitality to bring us into God's family. We need to do the same. Folks, one of the best ways for us to reach our community is simply good hospitality. Did you realize that? Just being a friend, a friend to people who are strange to you. And people say, you know what? As I've gotten to know you, I'm getting to know you're different. What makes you different? What makes you so friendly? Because people aren't like this. And then we just say, well, it's because Jesus was friendly to me. Jesus showed love to me when I was a stranger. And I want to show love to you. It's how we reach. It's one of the great ways to reach our community. Let me go back to the story here a little bit. We have Jesus and his angel posse are now coming to dinner. Abram has invited them to lunch. And by the way, he hasn't talked to his wife. Maybe he should have talked to his wife first. But if you haven't talked to your wife, guys, what is the first thing you better do if you've invited somebody to lunch? Talk to your wife, right? Because if she does not perform a minor miracle in the next 30 minutes in the kitchen, you are dead meat. So this is exactly what Abram does. Runs to Sarah and says, Honey, you need to do something. We have Jesus and his posse of angels coming to lunch right now. They just showed up on our doorstep. Quick, whip something together. I told them we're going to have a morsel of bread. So like, here, whip up three sayas of flour. Now this is where I find this interesting. Three sayas of flour. You know how much flour that is? Five gallons of dry flour. 36 pounds of flour. You think we're whipping up like a morsel? Now you picture this. You have 90-year-old Sarah in the hottest part of the day kneading together a 36-pound ball of dry flour. Who knows how much it is when it's wet. And she has the oven on preheat. I mean, she is sweating up a storm as a 90-year-old woman trying to make bread for these guys. I just, my mind is picturing it. I just kept laughing at it. I was like, you're like, like, what are you trying to give them? Like ultra leftovers for a month? But there is a little thing I want to point out to you here. And this is a, a little comment, but I think it's sort of helpful. You know something? Good hospitality is hard work, isn't it? Good hospitality is hard work. Anybody who tells you good hospitality is not hard work has been talking to the lady at the drive-thru far too much because it takes hard work to do good hospitality. And then it's not just like Sarah who's sweating up a storm doing things. Uh, Abram, he's out in the field. He is grabbing the calves trying to find which one is the softest. And he's like, we're going to slaughter this guy, and we're going to, he's the grill master in the house, because guys, we're the grill masters, right? Most of us are. So he's in charge of the meat. She's in charge of the bread. They choose a calf based on how soft it is. So this is a veal. This is a nice and tender, tender meat. It's melt-in-your-mouth meat. No gristle, uh, no chewy marks whatsoever. And Slaughters this calf and gets it cooked up 90 minutes from field to mouth. We're talking fresh meat like you cannot even buy in the store. And it's tender. It's veal. You see something here? A couple things. One is, you know, good hospitality is costly. Isn't it? Not only is good hospitality hard work, but good hospitality is costly. 
couple other things I've noticed here as I thought through this. You know, he promised them a morsel of bread, but what he's giving them is a lavish meal. He promised Jesus paper plates, sporks, and a cheese-filled hot dog. But what he's giving is an all-you-can-eat gyro bar. And isn't that what it is? Bread, tender meat with a yogurt on top. It's the curds. It's a yogurt on top. It's, nothing, it's a gyro. That's all it is. Why is he doing this so nice? Next point. The quality of our hospitality matters, doesn't it? The quality of our hospitality matters. I know these are just simple, practical points, but it's right there. If you give cheap hospitality, doesn't it send a message? If you give quality hospitality, doesn't it send a message? It sends a message to the stranger about what you really feel about them and how important they are. Let me give you an example. A couple of years ago, before we launched the Spencer campus, I, I met a, a guy who was a pastor. He was part of the Evangelical Free Church denomination. He's a pastor of a megachurch. Actually, this is his second megachurch. He planted a megachurch, huge in Canada, ended up going and taking uh, a, this one church down south and grew this to I don't know how many thousand people, and they have multiple campuses. And I got a chance to talk to this guy, and I told him what we were trying to do about multiple campuses. He says, oh, please come down. I'd love to share anything I can with you. I'm like, wow, that's really friendly. Most megachurch pastors like say, just talk to the secretary, and we'll see if we can find something. I ended up driving down, to, down south to see him, and he says, by the way, don't stay in a hotel. Please stay in my house. That, was, that took me back. That's very kind. Go into his house and get there about 11 o'clock at night. His wife says, by the way, what do you like to eat for breakfast when I make breakfast the next morning? And I just said to her, well, usually I just, real simple, just oatmeal and egg whites. And I just made an offhand comment, said, eggs aren't settling too well with the yolks for me right now, but it's not a big deal. I'm fine. Just an oatmeal and an egg. Didn't think anything of it. I get up the next morning and guess what I get served? Oatmeal and egg whites. And I'm starting to feel really uncomfortable because I'm like, nobody in their right mind besides me keeps egg whites in the refrigerator. And then I started to put two and two together. And so I asked my friend, I was like, what happened? Did your wife go to the store last night? Oh, yeah, she did. So your wife, who has three children, three little children, one of which is a Down syndrome child, at midnight went out to the store and bought egg whites so I could have it for breakfast? Well, yeah. And you opened up your home so I could stay in your house and she could do extra work when she has three little children with a Down syndrome child? And I'm going to tell you, all honestly, I do not remember anything from that conference a few years ago. I remember one thing. That woman's hospitality sent a message that I was important I was worth a lot more than a cheese-filled hot dog. They went out of their way to show kindness and love to me. See, the quality of our hospitality members matters. And the other thing I want you to notice this, you know, good hospitality leaves a lasting picture of the gospel, doesn't it? Incredibly undeserved grace. It's like, why would you do that? And they're like, well, that's because well, that's what Christians do. 
incredibly undeserved, gracious hospitality of strangers. Now, I know some of you are saying this. You're like, well, if Jesus came to my door, I would bake five pounds of flour. If Jesus came to my door, I would literally slaughter an animal. I would literally have that kind of a meal. But Jesus doesn't come to my door. Those aren't the kind of people I have over for hospitality. I just have ordinary people. And to that, I would tell you this. Look what the Scriptures say. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer him, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. My challenge, crosswinds, I want us to be a church that is not just known for fellowship and loving one another. I want us to be a church that is known for our lavish hospitality, that we seek out strangers, that we love strangers, even people who may not necessarily be that attractive to grab and to talk and to love, but that we would be like Jesus. Jesus was so hospitable to us, and we would be hospitable to others. And people would walk away with a lasting impression of the gospel. Amen? Let me continue the story. And they said to him, like, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, well, she's in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abram and Sarah were old and advanced in years, and the way of women had ceased with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, Well, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abram, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. But he said, No, you did laugh. So Jesus promises that he's going to return. He's going to return in a year, and Sarah's going to be pregnant. And Sarah, by the way, she's eavesdropping. Now, ladies, this only happens in the Bible, right? You've never done this. Never eavesdropped on your husband's conversations. Never, like, checked out what your children are texting on the phone. Just, just Sarah, right? Why are the ladies squirming right now? Yeah, well, this is what she's doing. She's eavesdropping. And, by the way, a little comment on Sarah. You know she's been barren her whole life, never been able to conceive. Not only that, but she's hit menopause, that's what this is saying. Menopause, the change of life, is now in the rearview mirror. Her life is in the hormonal garbage can. That's what's gone on with her. And so what does she do when she hears she's going to get pregnant? She laughs. It's like, yeah, this is a joke. Yeah, right. Like, that's going to happen. She laughs at Jesus. Note to self, when you have Jesus over for lunch, don't laugh at him. It will not go well for you. But I want you to think about this. She's laughing on the inside. 
She looks one way on the outside, but she's thinking something different on the inside. Now, men, I just want to, those of you who are married, can your wife do this? Look one way on the outside, but be totally different on the inside. Why are you afraid to answer? <laughs> yeah, somebody, voice of a child, yes. Yeah, it's very easy. I mean, some of you ladies have become very good at this, you know. You know how to put on makeup. You know how to, you know, how to put on nice clothes. And you have that perma-smile thing down. You know, like everybody, like us, you're happy on the outside, but inside can be very different. Inside, you could be critical. You can be very judgmental, mocking, unkind, angry. And by the way, this is not just an exclusive thing to ladies. Guys, we can do this too, can't we? Yeah, we've developed that skill. What often happens, we think, you know, it doesn't matter as long as I don't say it on the outside. Nobody knows. As long as I keep it bottled up, it's okay. And I put that fake smile on. And when we get to this text, we find that's not true. What matters is not just what we say on the outside, but matters what we're thinking on the inside. And guess who knows? Jesus. He knows just as much what's going on on the outside as the inside. In fact, here's the first point. Beware of looking pious on the outside, but laughing at God's words on the inside. Because Jesus knows. Look at uh, Hebrews 4.13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Guys, I just want you to know, God is concerned not just with the purity of your life on the outside, but the purity of your life on the inside. When you find yourself thinking, you know, angry thoughts, hateful thoughts, vengeful thoughts, it matters, Jesus knows. Repent of them. When you find yourself thinking lustfully, when you find yourself entertaining all kinds of thoughts that you know are not going to do you any good, we need to repent. We need to change. Jesus sees our heart as well as our life. Look what it says in Psalm 139. Oh, Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, and you discern my thoughts from afar. There is no way that Jesus could be far enough from us that he can't tell exactly what we're thinking. The point is this. It doesn't just matter what I say. It matters what I think. Now comes one of my favorite lines in this whole text. Jesus says, is anything too hard for the Lord? Here's the deal. Sarah has a God that's a little small, but constantly through this text, we're trying to find that God is much bigger, God is much more powerful than anything we could ever hope or imagine. And we learned this last week when we looked at El Shaddai. Isn't it true? God loves to put our lives in situation that are ho- situations that are hopeless. Situations that are beyond repair. So when he comes to the rescue, every single one of us knows that it was God who did it. Right? So we should expect to find ourselves that are beyond, 
that are just totally messed up beyond human repair. And that is exactly where Sarah finds herself, a barren woman for all of her life and now has entered into menopause. Women in menopause don't normally get pregnant. But this is exactly where God wants her to be. Because that way, when she does get pregnant, who gets all the credit? Who gets all the credit? God. Because God came to the rescue. My friends, expect to find yourselves in similar situations to Sarah. So when God comes to the rescue, he gets all the credit. The story continues. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abram went with them and to set them on their way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised. Then the Lord said, Because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. And I just want to point out the underlying section here. The underlying section is this. Abram is to teach his children and his household to keep the way of the Lord. What Abram is to do, and this is why God is sharing this inside info with Abram. Abram, I want you to realize that what's about to happen to, to Sodom is not like one of those chance random occurrences. It, it, it's not just because there was a volcano, a volcano nearby that just happened to land ash on them or whatever you want to use for any kind of humanistic explanation for it. What's about to happen to them is judgment for their sin. I want you to be very clear so you know that. So you can teach your children that God is large and in charge. And yes, He will judge sin. Unless Jesus Christ, ultimately we discover, has paid for our sin. Sin must be paid for. Nobody gets away with murder. They may get away with murder in this life, but they must face Jesus in the next life. And God is just it always has a just response to sin. In fact, look what this says in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Sodom and Gomorrah were meant to be an example of ungodliness. So we know what happens. And by the way, Oftentimes when we think of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, we'll get into this more next week, we just think of them with regard to their infamous sexual sin, but they were not just known for sexual sin, they were known for social sin. This is something that a lot of us find ourselves struggling with, and look at the social sin they were struggling with. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. They had really rich people, and they had really poor people, and they didn't have a middle class. And the rich people kept all the money to themselves, 
and they didn't have any benevolence to the poor. Here's the challenge for us. We can start acting like the people of Sodom if we are not kind and loving and sacrificing to those in need. Isn't that true? It's very easy for us to be that way. All right, last part of the text. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham stood before the Lord. And Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? I mean, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you sweep away the place and not spare it for 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And Abram answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole place for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let the Lord not be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. And he answered, I will not do it if I find thirty. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once, one more time. Suppose ten are found there. And he answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abram. And Abram returned to his place. Now let me share with you a little something that's a little different than your outline. I was laying in bed last night just rereading this passage and thinking on it. And what really came to mind here is God's incredible compassion. He is incredibly compassionate even towards sinners. The first thing you notice is this. He's willing to listen and make changes based on Abram's prayers, isn't he? Now, some of you say, well, Abram isn't praying. He's talking with God. Well, what is prayer? Talking with God. He's willing to save the city and even be talked down by Abram as Abraham intercedes for their lives. God is incredibly compassionate. Secondly is this. Look how kind he is. Jesus will spare an entire city from destruction if there are only ten righteous people in the whole place. Think about that. Just ten righteous people. I want you to realize something. Your righteousness counts. The right, living a right life and a God-honoring life makes a difference. Not just for you, but it influences and protects your family. It protects your church. It protects your community. You may say, it is just me, 
and I, I work in a place where there's a lot of unrighteous, sinful, cheating people, and I'm not making a difference. And to you, I would go back to this text and say, ten righteous people would have spared the city of Sodom. Your righteous life influences and protects others. Don't forget that. It's very powerful. Let me just give you some wraparound um, points to just sum things up. Number one, we learned this. If God has touched my life, I will love serving strangers, not just friends. Remember the difference between hospitality and fellowship? Number two, good hospitality is hard work. Let's just face it. Number three, good hospitality is costly. Let's just face it. Number four, good hospitality leaves a lasting picture of the gospel. When people say, how could you be so kind to me? I am just a stranger. They will not forget it. And they will want to know how Jesus has changed you. Number five, it doesn't just matter what I say. It also matters what I think. God knows us just as well on the inside as the outside. And we honor him in both ways. Number six, God will judge sin. Learn from the example of Sodom. There's no escape. And number seven, righteousness isn't just about my life. It protects and influences the lives of others. Doesn't it? And that's incredibly encouraging when you feel like it's just you and maybe a small handful of others in a very dark place. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for Genesis chapter 18. A lot of stuff to cover, but it set us up really well for Genesis chapter 19 with Sodom and Gomorrah. I pray that you would help us to be people who excel in hospitality, showing the undeserved grace to others like you have shown undeserved grace to us. I ask that we would be people, Lord, who are willing to just be extremely, uh, just take our lives, Lord, take our lives and use them as we try to live in righteousness to protect others and to influence others for you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us. And may God continue to enrich your life.